Welcome to the first ever Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Recap Podcast. My name is Grace Calhoun. I am a recent Master of Public Health graduate and a former health educator. I made this podcast for people like me who want to keep up with public health at large, but can't find the time or maybe motivation to read through the CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report every single week. Now, you can tune into my summary of the weekly report while you sip on your coffee or tea, head out on your morning commute, or go for a stroll. This week, I will be reporting on the six articles included in the January 1st, 2021 weekly report. For the absolute bare-bones summary of this report, be sure to skip to the last minute of the podcast. Otherwise, I will start with Article 1, titled Implications of Shortened Quarantine Among Household Contacts of Index Patients with Confirmed SARS-CoV-2 Infection, Tennessee and Wisconsin, April through September 2020. Okay, so before diving into this article, a little background on quarantine. So what the CDC currently recommends for quarantine is that if someone has been in close contact with a COVID-positive individual, um, somebody who's tested positively for the SARS-CoV-2 infection, they need to quarantine for 14 days after their last known contact. And in this podcast, I'm going to be using SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 interchangeably. But for the record, SARS-CoV-2 is the virus that causes COVID-19, and COVID-19 is actually just the name of the disease. Shorter quarantine periods have been outlined, but not necessarily recommended by the CDC. And so a shortened quarantine period would mean either seven days in a negative test or 10 days with no test um, since last exposure. While adopting a shorter quarantine period might improve compliance to quarantine itself, it is also likely to increase transmission from people who develop symptoms and become infectious towards the later end of the 14-day recommended period because shortening quarantine, you're cutting off seven, four to seven days of quarantining. The study at hand, which was conducted from April through September 2020, evaluated what a shorter quarantine period might look like for COVID transmission. The study contacted 105 people with COVID-19, and the study calls them index patients, so I will too, and they enrolled one to two people from the index patients' households Um, called contacts into this study, right? Because you have your index patient, the first patient who got sick, and then the contacts, the people who likely had contact with this patient. And so the 185 total contacts that were recruited for this study were tested for COVID every day and recorded their symptoms every day for between 15 to 17 days after the index patient initially became infected. So within this 15 to 17 day following period, 59% of contacts had detectable COVID-19. And of this infected group, the middlemost number out of all the recorded numbers, so the median for actually detecting uh, the first signs of COVID was about five days. So it's not the mean, it's not the average, it's the median. It's just the middlemost number if you lined up all of the numbers that they got in a line. Within seven days of the index patient testing positive for COVID, 76% of the contacts who would end up testing positive, 76% of those contacts were actually testing positive. And so by day seven, if a contact had no symptoms, if they were still testing negative, there was an 81% chance that they were going to stay that way. 
by day 10, 86% of the positive contacts were now testing positive. So now the probability that a person who was asymptomatic and negative thus far, it jumped from 81 to 93% that they would stay that way. These probabilities come before the researchers even excluded some of the biased data points. So data points where the contacts might have actually gotten COVID at the same time as the index patient or the contacts who possibly got COVID from an outside source. And so once those exclusions were applied, the study actually found that asymptomatic contacts who were testing negative by day 10 had a 95% probability of remaining this way throughout the rest of the 14-day quarantine period. So this is the type of data that begs the question, is a shorter quarantine something that the U.S. should consider doing in the hopes of higher quarantine adherence? Uh, the likelihood of developing COVID, you know, by day 10, if you were asymptomatic and testing negative, it, it gets pretty low, right? But even though this study found that you have an 81 to 95% chance that by days 7 and 10, respectively, if you were asymptomatic and you were negative, you would remain that way. The other side of this statistic is that one in five household contacts became COVID positive after day seven, and roughly one in 10 became positive after day 10. So with that many people becoming COVID positive after day seven and 10, is possible transmission worth risking as an outcome when we consider shorter quarantines? And the answer for public health is no. The article cites no evidence that shortening the quarantine period would even increase adherence to quarantine, which is the whole basis for doing this study. And while places like France and Belgium and some areas of the United States are choosing to shorten their quarantine period, these decisions do not come without risk of further spread. Now, limitations for this study we don't know whether the contacts followed social distancing or mask wearing precautions within their own household where the infectious index patient was. And the researchers assumed that the household contacts had contracted COVID from the index patient, which may not have been the case. And importantly, or lastly, this study uses a highly sensitive test to detect COVID-19, which isn't necessarily accessible to the general US population. Now on to my favorite article of this week's report. The title is Opportunities to Address Men's Health During the Perinatal Period, Puerto Rico, 2017. So the Puerto Rico Department of Health and the CDC conducted a joint study. They studied 1,178 Puerto Rican fathers, which is a pretty good sample size. And in this study, the researchers found a discrepancy in the types of health care that these fathers actually sought out. So while 80% of surveyed fathers had attended prenatal care visits, meaning visits about the child's birth, less than half of these men sought any other type of healthcare visit in the 12 months before their baby was born. So no visits for checkups, no visits for dental hygiene, no visits for any type of illness. So for Puerto Rican fathers, healthcare visits were significantly correlated with two factors, college completion and health insurance meaning that those with college degrees attended more healthcare visits than those without, and same with health insurance. This finding parallels something that is pretty well established in the public health world, which is education and insurance are paramount to health outcomes. And here we see one explanation for this, because lower education or insurance status might mean less visits to the doctor, and less visits to the doctor 
means less screenings, less check-ins, and less healthcare. So what's the implication here? This study cites numerous statistics on how these Puerto Rican fathers are involved not just with prenatal care visits, but 90% of them are purchasing supplies for their newborns, 70% were seeking out pregnancy and birth-related information on the internet or other sources. And so while these fathers might not be scheduling or attending other types of healthcare visits, like dental or illness-related or checkup-related, clearly prenatal care is a location where you can reach fathers. So when we talk about reach, we're talking about marketing and messaging. So the real implication is that public health professionals can use prenatal care visits as a setting to also promote men's health and promote opportunities for men to adopt positive changes that benefit their entire family, like quitting smoking, for example. Also, public health agencies could consider promoting men's health on pages on the internet that are about pregnancy and birthing, as well as promoting men's health in informational brochures or pamphlets about prenatal care. This study was subject to its fair share of limitations. So first, data was collected via self-report surveys, which can always introduce recall bias, meaning bias from having to report on something that's happened in the past, and social desirability bias, meaning the respondees might have slanted their answers to represent the behavior they wanted to have rather than the behavior they actually did have. Secondly, this data was collected right after the Zika virus outbreak, and hurricanes Irma and Maria, which could have affected healthcare-seeking behaviors. So we don't know how accurate this data is about healthcare-seeking in general. And also, the men surveyed were specifically Puerto Rican residents who were present for their partner's live births, which means that the findings from this population might not represent other men. And finally, while the study revealed the importance of education and insurance in attaining healthcare, the study did not assess the specific barriers facing Puerto Rican fathers who did not attend healthcare visits outside of prenatal visits. Moving on to Article 3, titled Performance of an Antigen-Based Test for Asymptomatic and Symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 Testing at Two University Campuses, Tennessee and Wisconsin, September through October 2020. Let's start with antigen tests. Very simply, antigen tests detect the presence of a specific viral antigen, uh, which would imply current viral infection. Antigen tests are pretty quick, so you've likely taken one if you've taken a test where your results come back in 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, they have received FDA emergency use authorization for use in both asymptomatic and symptomatic people within 5 to 12 days of symptom onset. The issue is that test performance data is limited for antigen tests, and this is true for both the asymptomatic and the symptomatic population. What this study did was it evaluated the performance of one type of antigen-based test. It's called the SOFIA SARS Antigen Fluorescent Immunoassay, or FIA, as we will now be calling it. And the researchers tested FIA, the antigen test, against a molecular type of COVID test, a nucleic acid amplification test, or as I will be calling it, NAT. And essentially, this study is just comparing antigen testing to molecular testing. FIA versus NAT. Who will win? Well, to understand the study, you do need a base level understanding of public health or epidemiological terms like specificity, sensitivity, and predictive values. 
These are terms that apply to diagnostic tools or tests, and sensitivity is the ability of a test to correctly identify patients with a disease, so the positive people, whereas specificity is the ability of a test to correctly identify people without the disease, so correctly identify the, the negatives. And for predictive values, a positive predictive value is the probability that subjects with a positive screening test actually have the disease. A negative predictive value is the probability that subjects with a negative screening truly don't have the disease. So this study analyzed 1,098 paired nasal swabs that were tested with FIA, which is the antigen test, and NAT, which is the nucleic acid amplification or molecular test. So first, how did the test compare with people who were symptomatic? Well, of the 227 study participants with one or more COVID symptoms, the antigen test FIA had an 80% sensitivity and a 98.9% specificity. So remember, sensitivity is detecting true positives specificity is detecting true negatives. These numbers that the study found, the 80% sensitivity and 98.9% specificity for the antigen test, these are lower than the numbers that the FDA report about this test, which is interesting. Also, FIA, the antigen test, had a positive predictive value of only 33.3% and a negative predictive value of 98.8%. In other words, for subjects who were screened positive for COVID-19 with the FIA test, only 33.3% of those were truly infected with COVID-19. Basically, FIA was much better at detecting true negatives than true positives. Of the eight false negative specimens that FIA tested, so of eight specimens that FIA said were negative that were actually positive, NAT, the nucleic acid test, positively identified two of those specimens by viral culture, which indicates that potentially infectious people might not be detected by antigen testing because of the specimens that FIA missed, at least two were picked up by the, the nucleic acid testing. All right, let's talk about asymptomatic participants, right? Because these people are, are somewhat scarier since it's hard to know if you have COVID, if you don't have symptoms, you might be going around spreading it more easily. So for asymptomatic participants, FIA had a sensitivity, again, so that's detecting a positive. Its sensitivity was 41.2%, and its specificity was 98.4%, with a positive predictive value of, again, 33.3%, and a negative predictive value of 98.8%. So for the asymptomatic population, FIA performed less accurately compared to its performance in the symptomatic population. But still, FIA performed much better at detecting true negatives than true positives in the asymptomatic population. Now, when compared with NAT for the asymptomatic population, the testing accuracies actually did not significantly differ. So what are the implications for this study? Obviously, there is a clear need for people to know their COVID-19 status with accuracy. A false negative could mean continued spread of COVID-19 for people who falsely believe themselves to be safe. So in all, the study suggests that if a person is symptomatic and they take an antigen test and screen negative, but they're symptomatic, they should seek out a second confirmatory testing, a nucleic acid amplification test, 
in order to double check and potentially identify a true positive that was falsely screened as a negative. And for an asymptomatic individual, so a person without COVID symptoms, if they take an antigen test and screen positive, a secondary confirmatory nucleic acid amplification test should be considered, especially if that person has been low risk and practicing safe behaviors. Basically just double checking unintuitive readings, right? So if you're symptomatic but you test negative, that doesn't totally make sense. So get another test, get a nucleic acid amplification test. Whereas, you know, if you have been really safe in practicing healthy behaviors and you've tested positive, that's kind of weird as well, right? So get that nucleic acid amplification test to be certain. That's sort of the the overarching conclusion of this study. Of course, this is easier said than done. I mean, many people have a hard enough time securing just one COVID test for themselves and Disparities related to race and financial status only make this recommendation of attaining two tests harder for non-white, lower-income Americans. Also, because this study evaluated FIA specifically for the antigen test, its findings can't be generalized to other types of antigen testing. Okay, Article 4. You guessed it, it is about COVID, but this one has a really interesting twist. So the title of the article, which is actually pretty easy to read this time, it's titled Impact of COVID-19 Pandemic on Global Poliovirus Surveillance. This article is definitely sort of about COVID. It's also heavily about poliovirus surveillance, and it's a little bit about poop is always fun. This report describes the impact of COVID-19 on polio surveillance by looking at data like the numbers of acute flaccid paralysis cases reported, number of cases with two stool specimens collected, active environmental sites collecting poop specimens, stool specimens, specimen transportation time, so how long it takes the poop to go from the collection site to laboratories, and specimens tested. And just to backtrack for a hot second about the term I mentioned earlier, acute flaccid paralysis, right? So this article is about polio, but the researchers are actually studying acute flaccid paralysis because acute flaccid paralysis is essentially a probable case of polio, which is why the surveillance and testing for this is crucial in actually screening and catching polio itself. The data is analyzed by comparing the first nine months of 2019 before COVID became an international public health emergency to the first nine months of 2020. This data was sourced from the Global Polio Eradication Initiative's Polio Information System. Important context here, in April 2020, the Global Polio Eradication Initiative, which I'm just going to be calling Eradication Initiative, They revised their polio surveillance guidelines to focus on reducing COVID-19 transmission to healthcare workers. So they modified activities, including anything with person-to-person contact, among other precautions. The findings are as follows. First, the polio surveillance data indicated a 33% decline in acute flaccid paralysis case reporting during the first nine months of 2020 compared to the first nine months of 2019. 33% decline in case reporting. This suggests that COVID-19 precautions may have affected the ability of surveillance officers to conduct surveillance activities. However, despite the decline in case reporting, most surveillance regions were able to collect two stool or poop specimens, 
Although the time between when the poop specimen was collected and when it was received by a laboratory did increase by 70%. So the time it took to transport the stool definitely got longer. Also of note, the mean number of stool samples that were collected from sewage in each surveillance area decreased. And this is important because analyzing the sewage helps assess the geographic distribution and duration of poliovirus circulation. So having decreased samples collected from sewage, it, it might reduce the eradication initiative's ability to assess the spread of poliovirus. Additionally, several labs reported that they shifted some of their polio staff members to COVID-19 roles like testing, which means that the remaining polio staff members could have been burdened with heavier workloads, which could have affected the surveillance. Overall, these interruptions to surveillance are likely negatively impacting global detection of poliovirus. To mitigate COVID's effects on poliovirus surveillance, the Eradication Institute has negotiated for some special specimen shipment clearance across closed borders. So these people are negotiating to get special clearance to ship poop across closed borders, which hopefully speeds up stool shipments, but I would, just, I would love to see their logistics person trying to figure that out. Good job, Eradication Institute. The Institute is also providing personal protective equipment for their field officers and updating their guidance on surveillance practices again. The study's limitations are that the funding and support for surveillance was not assessed and surveillance trends before 2019 were not analyzed. And we are wrapping up here with the last two articles, which I will be combining into one super summary because they're both related to the COVID-19 vaccine and the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices recommendations about the Moderna vaccine and vaccine distribution at large. Starting from the first one about Moderna, a little history Moderna was approved for emergency use by the Food and Drug Administration on December 18th, 2020. Moderna is injected intramuscularly in two doses, and each dose is administered from four weeks apart. So this committee, they assess data about immunizations and kind of make recommendations off of that. And their recommendations are categorized by levels of certainty. So high certainty, moderate certainty, low certainty, that sort of thing. From the committee's assessment, the vaccine has a high certainty of prevention of symptomatic COVID with a 94.1% efficacy of the vaccine. There's moderate certainty that this vaccine prevents COVID-19 associated hospitalization and low certainty that this vaccine prevents asymptomatic infection and all-cause death. However, this does need to be contextualized by the implication that if the vaccine is effective in preventing symptomatic infection of COVID, then it is expected to prevent the associated hospitalizations and deaths. Harms from the Moderna vaccine include moderate certainty about adverse effects and high certainty for the estimate of reactogenicity. 
So reactogenicity means typical post-vaccination symptoms like sore arm, redness, swelling. Those would be local reactions. And then fever, muscle aches, and headache, which would be systematic reactions. So systematic adverse reactions were more commonly reported after the second dose of the vaccine than after the first dose. And they were more frequent and severe in people between the ages of 18 and 64 as compared to the people who were 65 years and older. Most adverse reactions occurred within the first two days after the vaccine was received and resolved in a median of two to three days. In regard to the advisory committee's updated recommendation for allocating the vaccine, the deal is that there are essentially four phases to consider. There's phase 1A, 1B, 1C, and phase 2. So phase 1A are the people that should be getting the vaccine first. These are healthcare personnel and residents of long-term care facilities. So these are the priority for vaccinations. As of December 20th, the advisory committee also made recommendations for phase 1B, which includes people 75 years or older and non-healthcare frontline essential workers. The elderly population was selected because of their high risk of COVID morbidity and mortality and frontline workers were selected because of their high risk of COVID exposure. Frontline workers include first responders like firefighters, police officers. They include postal service workers, public transit workers, grocery store workers, you know, high, high, high levels of job-related exposure. About 49 million people are included in phase 1B. Phase 1C includes people who are 65 to 74 years old, people aged 16 to 64, who have high-risk medical conditions, and all remaining essential workers that were not included in phase 1B. So high-risk conditions are prioritized because a person with just one high-risk condition has a 2.5 times greater risk for hospitalization than somebody without a high-risk condition. If a person has three or more high-risk conditions, they're at five times greater risk of hospitalization. So this includes a lot of people, 129 million people are included in phase 1C. Lastly, phase two includes all other people over 16 years old who were not already recommended for vaccination in phases 1A, 1B, or 1C. The committee is also closely monitoring clinical vaccine trials for children and adolescents. As of now, they have no recommendations for the usage of a COVID vaccine in people under 16 years old. All right, folks, thank you for listening to the first ever Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Recap Podcast. As promised, this is your minute recap of today's episode. In the first study, researchers found that of all participants who would end up getting COVID, one in five of those participants actually didn't test positive for COVID until day seven of their 14-day isolation period, and roughly one in 10 didn't test positive until day 10. In the second study, researchers identified prenatal care visits as a potentially successful place to promote men's health. In the third study, we learned that you should pretty much always double check the results of an antigen test. In the fourth study, we learned that poliovirus surveillance has been slowed down and reduced a little bit because, or likely because of COVID-19. And fifth, we reviewed the advisory committee on immunization practices, updated recommendations for COVID vaccinations.